Thank you, Dave. Let's open our Bibles up to Psalm 40. Psalm 40. And just so you know, that clock is broken, so I have no idea how long this is going to go. I can go long. So I try not to. I'll, I'll, I'll try to keep it. Uh, if I go too long, we have John in the back. Who'll, like, he'll do this if, I, if I'm getting close. Um, Psalm chapter 40. And while you're turning there, I, this is the last Sunday of the year. And what we like to do is we like to hit this Sunday with an exhortation uh, that really allows us to look to the future, to look to this next year, not with blind optimism, but with a a faith-fueled perspective on what God does, what God promises he will do, and what God can do in our lives. And we like to do this because, in particular, at the end of 2021, I think a lot of us are tired. It was a long year. And it's been a long couple of years. And I want us to take this time, if we haven't done so already, to do sort of an inventory of ourselves, sort of a a state of the soul, right? Where is your faith? How are you ending this year? What's your faith like? Is Is it lively or is it listless, right? Do you feel energized and hopeful or do you feel cold and burdened. Some of you may be coming into a season of of revival where you're feeling stirrings from the spirit and others of you may be numb and not feeling much at all. And in in either case, what what I do know is that we all desperately need to pursue a rediscovery of the joy of the Lord and very particularly the joy of salvation. In fact, that's what I want us to see in Psalm 40, is how to recover and rediscover the joy of salvation. And just in principle form, here's what we're going to see. Uh, if you're visiting, if you're newer here, uh, we don't do lots of fancy points with alliteration and moving backgrounds and all that. I have, one, I have one point. Our sermons generally have one point, and here's the one point. The joy of salvation is found in looking back and looking forward to God's grace. If you know that you need the joy of salvation, if you sense that you should have it but you don't have it, or if you have it and you want to maintain it, the joy of salvation is found in looking back and looking forward to God's grace. So this psalm, Psalm 40, is going to be divided into half. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10 where we remember God's grace, and then we'll look at verses 11 through 17 where we are anticipating God's grace. And you see this throughout Scripture, um, Old Testament and New Testament, that we are looking back to what God has done, and we are looking forward to what God will do, his accomplishments and his promises. And this makes up a lot of the Christian life and our Christian faith. So first... In pursuit of recovering, for many of us, recovering the joy of salvation, we remember God's grace. And in verses one through three, what we see is that God's grace is, for all believers, a grace of deliverance. It's a grace of rescue, Psalm 40, 1 and 2, to start with. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. I'll be honest, this is the first psalm I ever remember reading as a Christian. I don't know if it was the first psalm, but it was the first psalm I remember reading. I was a new believer. I had only been reading the Bible for a couple of months uh, prior to that and really only read a little bit of Genesis, got bored, read a little 
bit of Exodus, got bored, jumped to Matthew, got saved. So that's all, that's all I can tell you about my reading of the Bible. And then as a Christian, I'm reading all these different places and Psalm 40 hit me because in these two verses, it was so clear. That's what God just did for me. He delivered me from the pit, the miry, sticky, slippery clay pit that I couldn't extricate myself from. He rescued me from utter damnation and loss and he put me somewhere safe. So in those few verses, I, I, I learned quickly to go back and to meditate on how God delivered me. Now I learned it, but then I kind of unlearned it, right? You tend to forget the things that you're supposed to stay close to. God's deliverance is fundamentally a work of grace, right? It's, it's not something that you do for yourself. It's not something that God does because he owes you. It's something that God does out of his own goodness. We are saved by grace. What do we see in these, in these verses, right? That he inclined to me and heard my cry. When the sinner sees himself or herself in a place where they are caught and condemned, where there is no way out, they can't rescue themselves, they can't get themselves out of the situation, we cry out to God for mercy. We ask God for grace. God, save me, deliver me. I have no other hope but you and your kindness. I don't deserve this, but God, will you please save me? In that is an act of faith, right? It's a crying out, a pleading with God for what we don't deserve. And God hears those who cry out in faith. And what does he do? He lifts us out, out of the muck and the mire, the pit. It's a miry bog. It's... Uh, it's like the clay that is simultaneously slippery and sticky. You know what it's like. You get your boot or your foot stuck into uh, some thick mud and uh, you pull your leg out and your boot stays in, but your foot comes out, right? Uh, I, in fact, I still, there is a shoe buried somewhere in the park in Geneva by the river where that happened to me. I lost my shoes deep in these like lilies where the frogs hang out. I don't know, but my, my shoes are long gone. Like we're talking about a pit that is like that, clay, wet, sticky, slippery. You can't get yourself out. You need somebody to rescue you. And that's what God does. He lifts us up and he doesn't just get us out of the pit and then set us down again so that we can try and work our way through it. He lifts us out and he sets us on a solid rock, a firm place to stand so that we're no longer in slippery places. He takes us out of the pit and we don't go back there. He puts us on the rock, the rock of his word or the rock of Jesus Christ, his son, however you want to conceive of it, right? He puts us into a place of safety. It's a transfer from a place of death to a place of life and security out of that pit of sin and damnation. You know what it's like. You know the danger of sin, not just what it can do to you in this life, but what it will do to you in the next if it isn't atoned for. God rescues, he delivers. This is the beginning of rediscovering the joy of salvation is going back and remembering God's grace of deliverance in your life. And what happens? He rescues us and we, we discover this, this joy. You see, you see it in verse three. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. And many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. He put a new song in my mouth. The, the person who is newly, freshly rescued, who knows they couldn't have saved themselves and didn't deserve any help, but got it all, they are a happy people. 
Those who are redeemed, rescued, delivered, those who have been saved by no work of their own, but merely by the mercy and the effort of God. They experience a kind of joy that is a a spiritual kind of happiness that isn't dependent upon our circumstances. It transcends all of that so that we sing even when the sun isn't shining in our world, even when things are dark, when, when life seems to be giving way. We can sing because it isn't dependent upon our circumstances but upon our Savior who rescued us. And this experience, this experience of joy and redemption is somehow contagious, right? And, and many of you remember this. Many of you will remember when you were a new believer, somebody, if you can remember when that happened, if you can remember that, you remember like, wow, there was a joy, there was an excitement, there was an interest in sharing this with others. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. You know what it's like for people to, to have seen you in those days and maybe it was long ago or maybe it's happened more recently in your life where you were really on fire when you were zealous for the Lord. People see it, they're impacted. They wanna know more, they wanna learn more. I'll tell you this, when I started to meet these Christians when I was like 17 years old, never heard the gospel before, I met these Christians, they started telling me about Jesus and I would tell my pagan friends, I would tell, I would be like, man, they have something that I want They have this peace, they have this joy. I would use those words. They have this peace and this joy that I do not understand, but I know that they say it comes from Jesus. It is absolutely, it is so enticing, it is so alluring, and it seems so right. I want it. And they would all say, too bad for you, because you can't have that. You are too far gone. But we see this, right? People see that in you. They have seen it in you in the past. You probably remember those times. So to remember God's grace is to remember his grace of deliverance when he saved you. But it's not just when he saved you, it's that he saved you. Because not everybody can remember the moment they were converted. Some of you were raised in the church and and you were converted at a young age. Or some of you were converted in a season of life. You can't pinpoint the day that it happened and who really cares? What matters is that it did happen. You rejoice that you have been delivered. And even then, it's not just remembering what God did in saving you from sin, death, and hell and reconciling you to himself through his son. It's remembering that God continues to rescue you and deliver you in a multiplicity of ways throughout your life. You can certainly remember the various ways in which God has had to intervene in your jacked up life because you made bad decisions and you're like, I don't know what's gonna happen. I don't know how I'm gonna get out of this mess. I don't know what's gonna, how how is this gonna get fixed? And God sometimes, somehow, seemingly almost miraculously shows up and undoes things or if he doesn't undo them he gives you the strength to persevere through them can you recall you should be able to recall can you recall the times in which God has stepped into your life to rescue you not just from sin death and hell but from some of your choices from some of the things that are happening around you I can it's grace Upon grace, you see, we're supposed to recall God's works in our lives. We're supposed to recall them and celebrate them. We're supposed to write songs about them, to sing about them. We should keep catalogs of them so that we can recount them and share them with our children, to share them with our friends. God saves those who believe, but he continues to save us in a variety of ways throughout our lives. And this is remembering God's ongoing grace in your life. You want to rediscover the joy of salvation? Remember God's grace, his grace of deliverance. And also, we remember that the, the, the grace of God in his, in his goodness, right? And we see this in verses four and five. 
that God is good. It's not just what he does, it's who he is. We're remembering the character of God, not just the work of God. It says, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. One and two used to be my favorite verses in this psalm, but in these later years, it's been four and five. See, here we we get a picture of, of God's very character, his goodness. We live in a world that's filled with tempting idols, right? And idols don't have to be explicitly religious. They can be secular, but idols are those things that promise some kind of deliverance, don't they? They they promise life or transformation, and they're enticing. They're tempting because, boy, they look good, and they seem to produce results, right, based on worldly standards. And so all of these people are hawking all of these idols, and, and all of these idols speak up and tell us, you can trust me, you can come my way, and I will give you what you long for. I can help you to become the person you're supposed to be. But the psalmist has already learned, no, this David, who wrote, he's like, I, listen, I know the Lord. He has delivered me. He is my deliverer. So blesses the man who makes the Lord his trust and doesn't trust in the proud to those who go astray after a lie. Remembering God's grace keeps you from idols. And remembering God's grace is remembering that he is a generous, good God. He has multiplied. Do you see that? He has multiplied his deeds and his thoughts toward us. This is overwhelming. This is overwhelming. Listen, if I do a good thing, if I just do one good thing, I feel pretty awesome about that one thing. And I like to see if anybody saw. Anybody see the good thing I did? My go-to is my wife, Jan. Did you see what I just did? See what I just did? That person pulled out in front of me. I didn't say anything. I didn't, I didn't throw my hands up and be like, what, what the heck? I didn't, did you see that? And Jen will usually call me out. She'd be like, yeah, but it's in your heart though. So you don't get any points for that. It's because you didn't say it out loud. You wanted to say it. Like, oh, I totally wanted to say it, but I didn't say it. I get some kind of a point. I do one good thing. I want props. I want, I want some sort of like attaboy. I want that slap on the butt. Like, yeah, go get him. That, you, you did so good. And that's a weakness. Fine. God doesn't do one small good thing for us. He doesn't even do one infinitely good thing for us. He is good and does good to us. He multiplies his good deeds to us. I mean, ultimately we think what? Well, he sent his son. He chose us. He regenerated us. He he sent his son. He sent his spirit. He caused us to be born again. He gave us every spiritual blessing in Jesus. He gave us spiritual gifts so that we could be useful in the kingdom. He is sanctifying us and transforming us and making us to become more like Jesus. But on top of all of that, everything that you enjoy righteously in this life is a gift from God. Every good thing, everything from the great sandwich to maybe your husband's new mustache, which looked very sweet. I saw this morning, rocking the no more goatee, just the big mustache. I was impressed. Like every good thing in your life that you enjoy, right? The, the, the Marvel movie that a bunch of you went and saw, you had a good time. Like that's a gift. It's a gift that you can actually thank God for. It's called his common grace. So meals, family, friends, but ultimately and most profoundly that God does good to you in Jesus 
And this multiplied over and over again. He doesn't grow weary in doing you good. I get tired of doing you good. I'm not very good at doing you good. But God is in Jesus. But it goes beyond that. This is where it really, this is where it really, really hits me because God's multiplying, right? Not just his deeds toward us, but his thoughts toward us. You have multiplied your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. Think about those that you care for, those that you love, the important people in your life. You think about them a lot and you think fondly of them. You think good thoughts and you think about them a lot. If you don't think good thoughts and think about them a lot, they probably aren't that important to you, relatively speaking. And God multiplies his thoughts to us. I mean, you are on God's mind. Consider that, you. Sinner, rebel, weak, faithless. That's who we are. As much faithfulness as we can muster up, it's still marked and marred by sin, incompleteness, and failure. But he thinks about us. He thinks fondly of us. This is why we see throughout the Old Testament men saying, what is man that you are mindful of him. Why would you, the infinite, holy, just, and good God, give us any consideration, especially in light of the fact that you've given us every good thing and we threw it all away? He thinks of me. He knows me. This is God's character. This is who he is. He is good So remembering God's grace is remembering God's grace of deliverance. It's remembering God's grace of his goodness and his character. But it's also remembering God's grace in his son. This is a psalm of David, right? It's a psalm of David. You can read that. You can see that. But it's also also a psalm of Jesus. And it's not a psalm of Jesus because Jesus wrote it. By hand, it's a psalm of Jesus because it is, in large part, about Jesus. Look at verses 6 through 10. In sacrifice and offering, now this is still David speaking here. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. David is speaking. And he's speaking about his experience, but he's also speaking about Jesus. He's also speaking about the fulfillment of these verses. And if you can't quite see it yet, check out Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, and now he starts quoting Psalm 40. Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. 
When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. Jesus said this. When Jesus showed up, he's quoting Psalm 40. He's fulfilling Psalm 40. Psalm 40, this Psalm of David, is very much a Psalm of Jesus. And so we remember God's grace, but we specifically need to remember it in his son. I mean, we've been saying this already all along, but it means that we have to have a detailed faith, which requires a detailed theology. A theology that is grounded in the revelation of God that tells us us everything we need to know about his son. And so here in part, we learn a few things, don't we? We learn that uh, the Old Testament sacrifices, David knew this, Jesus certainly knew it, and that's why he came. The Old Testament sacrifices did not cleanse us from our sins. The Old Testament sacrifices, the animal sacrifices that God commanded Israel to offer up in worship, it didn't take away their guilt. It was a picture of redemption, of cleansing, but it didn't actually cleanse. It didn't make anyone new. It didn't purify the soul. It made them ceremonially clean. Ceremonially clean. For example, if we go to Hebrews chapter 9, you can just listen to verses 13 and 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The sacrifices of the heifer made people ceremonially clean. It fit them for worship and life in in the community of faith, but it didn't fit them for life with God. Those sacrifices did not make them new, did not take away their guilt, did not reconcile them to God. It pointed to Jesus, who offered himself once for all, without spot, without blemish, the holy sacrifice that atones for all of our sins, that satisfies God's wrath and makes us fit for life with him. We see the grace of God's son in his sacrifice that was made. And in verse 7 of Psalm 40, we see that this was, this was not just a, a sacrifice that surprised everybody. This is something that was prophesied. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. Jesus claims that, doesn't he? It was written of me. The whole of the Bible speaks of me. From the beginning in Genesis 3, when the conquering offspring of Eve is is said to come and destroy the devil, that's me. When when the promise goes to to Abraham, it says, listen, through you, the whole world is going to be blessed. Jesus says, "That's, that's me. When it comes through Moses and David, the, 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 the patriarchs, the, the prophets, uh, Isaiah, all of them are constantly pointing to Jesus, saying that he is the fulfillment, the one who makes everything right in the end. In fact, one of the more fun passages of Scripture is in Luke 24, after Jesus' death and resurrection. He begins to appear to the disciples, and on one account, he appears to the disciples that are walking on the road to Emmaus, and as they're walking, Jesus is talking with them, and they're not really putting it together. They're not recognizing Jesus. Something is keeping them from recognizing the risen Lord walking with them, and as Jesus begins to question them and talk to them, we read this in Luke 24, 27. 
where it says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In the book, in the scroll, they were all written of Christ. It's the grace of God's son. We go back, we understand that, that Jesus was prophesied and when he showed up to make a sacrifice, what he was doing was not his will alone, but the Father's will. And this is even reflected in verse eight of Psalm 40. I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is written in my heart. Jesus says again and again and again, I have not come to do my will, but the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now to do God's will means, yes, that he kept the law. He obeyed the commands, the commandments. He kept it all. Where we have failed, he was faithful every time. Where, we were, where we're supposed to love and forgive and be kind and generous and prayerful, but aren't, Jesus always was. He submitted himself to the will of the Father in that way, but also ultimately he submitted himself to the will of the Father in offering his life as a ransom for sinners. In John chapter six, verses 38 to 39, Jesus says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. He fulfills the will of the Father to save a people for his own possession. And this work, this prophecy, this fulfillment, this submission, all of it is offered to the world indiscriminately. It is offered to all. It is preached, heralded, proclaimed. Jesus is always preaching this message. We're called to preach this message, to herald it. I mean, he says, he says he doesn't restrain his lips from speaking these things. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. This is not a, a private thing. It may be personal, but it needs to be very public. I have not concealed your steadfast love. He has to make it known. And Jesus did the same. Jesus was always preaching the good news, the gospel. Yes, he performed many signs and wonders, but those signs and wonders, the casting out of demons, the healing of withered legs, as good and important as those are, as, as much as they are a demonstration of the heart of God and, and his mercy and compassion, those miracles don't save there is one sign, there is one wonder that saves. That's the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that is now shared verbally through a message. It is proclaimed, it was preached by Jesus and now it is preached by us and sinners are saved by that. In fact, even just at the beginning of, of Mark's gospel, Mark chapter one, starting in verse 14, it says, now after John, that's John the Baptist, after he was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. So repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus preached, he shared, he proclaimed, he heralded, however you want to say it. He is the fulfillment of this song. So, in our desire, in our need to recover a joy of salvation, it begins with remembering God's grace, with looking back, looking back to what God has done for us in the person and work of Jesus. 
It means understanding that he delivers us from our sins. It means that we recognize that his deliverance comes from his own character and goodness, that he thinks of us, that he loves us. We remember God's grace to us in Jesus. We start there. And we not only remember God's grace, but we must also anticipate God's grace. We need to look forward to the future and anticipate more grace. Now, again, if you think, well, that makes you greedy, it doesn't make you greedy, it makes you needy. That's okay. Okay, listen, uh, anytime you pray, you're asking for what you don't deserve. You're asking for God to give you, to help you, to hear you. You don't deserve any of it. But God doesn't just want us to remember what he did. He wants us to anticipate what he's going to do. In verses 11 through 17, we see this. And so what we are talking about here are God's promises, his ongoing promises to us. And God makes a few promises to us, many promises. We're just gonna look at a couple here in verses 11 and 12. God promises to preserve us. It's the promise of preservation. Verse 11, it says, as for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me for evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. David is not confused about who God is and who he is in part because he constantly goes back to what he knows about the Lord, what he has experienced himself. God promises to preserve his people from sin, not from the presence of sin and not even from the, the painful reality of sin. You all know that you can get burned and you have been burned by your own wickedness. I have. But he protects us from the power of sin. See, David's experiencing conviction, right? You see the conviction. He says, evils have encompassed me. Well, that sounds like an outside problem, doesn't it? It sounds like people or outside forces are out against him. But then he says, my iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. My sins are so many, I can't see anything but them. I can't see over them. I can't seem to see through them. They are more than I can count. My heart, not just my actions, he says, my heart fails. David knows who he is. He knows what he deserves, but he also knows what he's getting, which is grace. You see, David has conviction. This is the mark of healthy faith. Conviction with hope. You can't follow Jesus. You can't read God's word and not be convicted. Like it's, it's going to convict you. You're going to see in the law where you fail. But if all you have is law and no gospel, you will despair. You see, religious conviction is conviction that leads to no hope. Religious conviction is conviction that leads to despair. But a gospel, a gospel hope, a gospel conviction is a conviction that leads to a confidence in God's grace, in his mercy, because he has promised it to us. I mean, don't lose sight of it, right? His promise to, to work in us, to bring us through sin's power, for us to become more and more like Jesus is grounded in his love. It's not grounded in our love for him, which is really telling. And look again at what it says. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. You're not going to hold it back. You're not going to dole it out in some miserly fashion. You're no Ebenezer Scrooge. You're, you lavish upon me mercy. So he says it this way. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. So what is it that preserves him from sin? 
You could say, well, it's God's work. Well, sure, but where does the work come from? It comes from his character. It comes from his heart, his love, and his faithfulness. God doesn't help you because you're faithful. If that were the case, you would be helped very little. God helps you and preserves you because he is faithful, because he loves you, because he has you, because you are his in every way. Yeah, there's a verse that I read a lot, a couple of verses that I read a lot. I go to him a lot. I preach from him a lot. I, I, I cross-reference him a lot. And maybe when I'm about to read them, you're going to go like, oh, give me the little, okay, here we go again with those verses. I'll tell you this. I think we tend to roll our eyes at verses that we have become numb, numb to, not because we are overly familiar with them, but because we have become utterly unfamiliar with them. We've stopped listening. We've stopped reading. We've stopped hearing. God promises to deliver us because of his love. So Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. Here is our certainty. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing can separate us from God's love. Nothing, nothing you do, nothing, any, no circumstance. So we can anticipate God's grace of preservation because his love is constant. He doesn't love like us, he's not finicky. He doesn't, he, he doesn't uh, ebb and flow with his feelings for us. He is love. His love grounds his work. You see, we anticipate God's grace by looking to his promise of preservation from sin's power. You see what sin does? Sin steals joy. That's what it does. It seeks to replace it. Sin wants to replace the joy that we have in Jesus, in God, by giving us some sort of worldly satisfaction or happiness in a corruptible way. So we anticipate God's grace to bring us through it. We also anticipate God's grace in his promise of deliverance, right? He preserves us from our sin, but he also delivers us from our enemies. In verses 13 and 15 of Psalm 40, it says, Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. David's in some kind of trouble. We don't know exactly what it is. But as he's writing this, he's in trouble. He needs God to do, again, what he has done so many times before, and ultimately, most dramatically, in delivering him from his sins, from damnation. So he says, be pleased, the Lord, to deliver me. Oh, Lord, make haste to help me. Do it fast. Let those who be put to shame who, who, and disappointed altogether, who seek to snatch away my life, let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my heart. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. And you should get the picture here, right? David is facing some kind of persecution or opposition from people in his life who are mocking him, who are tempting him, who are cursing him, who want him to fail. And all the while they're saying their God isn't there, he doesn't hear you, or he doesn't exist, or he doesn't love you. And yet God promises David deliverance from his enemies, from the tempters and the mockers and the persecutors and the haters. Now, deliverance from your enemies doesn't necessarily mean deliverance from the immediate circumstances brought about by those enemies. Christians still die. Christians get beheaded, sawn in two. They get crucified upside down. They get burned alive. They get fed to the lions. 
They get beat up, out, cast out of their homes. They lose their jobs. They, they, they become isolated. They suffer greatly. But the deliverance that God offers is It's a deliverance of our souls. He guards your heart and he guards your spirit as you walk through the attacks of the enemy. In Psalm 138, just listen to verse seven. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, and y'all know that, you know what it's like to walk in the midst of trouble, whether that's your own doing or someone else's. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies and your right hand delivers me. David gets this promise. You see, if sin seeks to steal joy or to replace joy, then what our enemies do is our enemies attack our joy. They try to just rob us of it altogether. And what I love here in verses 16 and 17 as we wrap this up is that God himself holds out joy. He holds it out. He promises it to us in a sense. He offers it to all who are willing to take it. In other words, you can have the joy of salvation. If you've lost it, you can recover it. You can rediscover it. You can experience revival because God is always holding it out. Look, listen to these last two verses. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. Do you lack joy? I mean, think about it for a second. Do you lack joy? I do. Yeah. I mean, I get it. I experience it. It's here and there, you know. It's kind of hit and miss. More miss than hit these days, I feel like. If you were like me and at the end of 2021, you're lacking joy, then let me follow it up with, do you want joy? Do you want the joy of salvation? You've had it before. If you lack it and if you want it, then let me suggest that we need to start by asking for it. Ask God to give you what you lack, what you need. Ask, seek, knock. That's what Jesus says, right? He doesn't just say that. Listen to what he says in Matthew 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Those are promises. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? It'd be like taking my kids to Buffalo Wild Wings. And they're all excited for the wings, but then they all get my daughter Catherine's vegan stuff instead. Like, I wouldn't do that to you. I wouldn't, you I wouldn't, if you ordered the wings, I wouldn't give you Catherine's vegan food. That would not be nice, right? That's the whole idea. We are evil, Jesus says, and yet even we give good gifts to our children when they ask because we love them. And so this is what he says. 
How much more will your Father who is in heaven get good things to those who ask him? We should ask, seek, and knock. And we're asking, we're not just asking, here's the thing, we're not just, hey God, give me joy. We're asking the God of joy to give us joy. The God who created it, the God who emanates joy. He is the one, the one who can give it. Romans 15, 13 says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So get that, it's God who gives joy, but we find it in believing through our faith that is cultivated as we remember God's grace and anticipate it. It's faith recovered. Listen, if, uh, if you lose sight of grace, you lose your grip on joy. I think it's that simple. But the joy of salvation is found in looking back and looking forward to all that God has done for us in Christ. So let me just encourage you very simply to remember God's grace. Remember it. Remember God's grace to you in Jesus. Recount it. Recall it. Share it. Write it down. Write songs about it. Write stories about it. And anticipate God's grace, which means look for it. Look ahead, wait for it. Wait and cry out. He will hear you. He will deliver you. Because joy, really what joy is, joy, well, it's not what joy is. Here, here's how joy works. Joy is the consequence of grace and gratitude coming together. It's, it's like grace is there. It's a reality. God is gracious to all. And the more gratitude that you have in response to the grace, the more joy you will experience. And when we've experienced the grace of God in its ultimate form through Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection, and we are appropriately grateful, that's when joy begins to sing. So let's look back to Christ and look forward to God's promises that we might have joy at the end of this year, even as we're walking into 2022. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would give us what we need and what we want, Lord. And if we don't want it, change our hearts to want it. We pray, God, that you would revive us and refresh us, that you would lift our heads. We are tired and weary. We need you to refresh us and to strengthen us. Lord, lift us up again out of the clay. Set our feet on a rock and allow us to stand securely on Christ and to run the race that you have set before us. We praise you, God, for your love. We marvel at all that we have in Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.